Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 31st episode of the Not A Cast entitled Never Bet Against the Lannisters, an analysis of the Game of Thrones Tyrion 4, in which Tyrion Lannister rides as a captive of Catelyn Stark to the Vale, gets ambushed by the Mountain's clansmen, and then sows doubt in Catelyn's mind about whether he was actually the one who sent the cat's ball to kill Bran. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., Wolfman Zach, and Joe L. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Thank you, as always. And our spoiler warning, as we say in all podcasts, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. And for this episode, that will become, we'll be, we will be talking about season seven spoilers. So just be aware of that if you are avoiding the show at all costs. Anything and everything. As we talk about in every podcast these days, for those of you who contribute to our Patreon at the $10 Sworn Sword level or above, you have the ability to ask us questions. And we have a question from one of our favorite questioners, and I've given him a little nickname in this podcast, and that is Sir Travis the Investigator, who asks several, <laughs> many, many questions often and forever, and it's great, and I love it. And he asks, in your Catelyn 5 episode, you discussed Hostertully a bit. I've always been intrigued with his character and absolutely love his name. I love his name, too. It really gives a sense of this big, strong presence. Catelyn remembers traveling the Riverlands with her father. We see Hosteris as a sick, weak, aged man in the series who ultimately passes away. Catelyn's memories are of a virile and proud man who was once her father. My question pertains to how things might have been different if Hoster Tully wasn't in the condition he is when we first meet him. How do you think he would have handled time in Lannister? The retreat of Lysa to the Eyrie, Catelyn's suspicions, Ned's imprisonment, Walder's support, and the Blackfish's return, etc. So, thank you, Sir Travis, for the question. Since I've been talking for a bit, Emmett, why don't you give Sir Travis the answer that he so truly deserves? That's an interesting question. Thank you for it, Sir Travis. I also like Hoster Tilly's name. For some reason, it reminds me of like an apple, like some sort of delicious, <laughs> specific breed of apple, the Hoster Tilly. Yes, delicious. Exactly. I'm not a not a huge fan of the man in general in terms of the revelations <laughs> we find out about him concerning Lysa. And that village that uh, belonged to the Good Brooks and how he came down in it with, with fire and sword. Among the South Run Ambitions Coalition lords, I think he's the relative rotten apple in that bunch. Mm-hmm. That being said, as you say, Catelyn loved him dearly. She's got very uh, strong, intense, favorable memories of him. And he seemed to overall be a very kind of canny and effective lord of the Riverlands. Which, to give yes. him credit, that's that's not easy to do. As we've mentioned before, the Tullys are the, the weakest of the paramount lords in terms of their geography and overall kind of political and economic control of their territories. So the one decision we do kind of get to see him make, even in his state, even in A Game of Thrones, is that after Gregor Clegane raids Tully lands in response to Catelyn snatching up Tyrion, Edmure is all champing at the bit to take direct revenge against the mountain, against the Lannister. But Hoster insists on sending word to the crown and bringing a suit before Robert or, as it turns out, Ned, since he's sitting on the the Iron Throne that day. Mm -hmm. We see this play out in Eddard's 11th chapter in A Game of Thrones. And Ned thinks to himself something like, oh, man, good thing Hoster was giving the decisions and not Edmure, because that's that's the wise, canny move is to come seeking Robert's approval so to make sure that you are not seen as the one breaking the king's peace and that the Lannisters are. So that that hint gives... Gives us the idea that Hoster would be less rash than Edmure, and that would make a huge difference to the opening stages of the war, because Edmure's rashness and his insistence, as Ned says, in defending every inch of Tully lands from the Lannisters, even ones that aren't strategically viable, uh, 
you know, if you, if you take that out of the equation, Jamie does not have such an easy time putting River under siege. Tywin does not so easily rampage through the southern Riverlands unopposed. And so Rob finds a more favorable situation when he comes south. Now, having said that, it worked out kind of well for the Stark side that Jamie was as overextended as he was and was yep. as confident as he was because that led him directly into a trap. So maybe you get a situation where Jamie's host is put to flight earlier, but he himself remains at large. Cause, so that, that would have a whole series of ripple effects. But yeah, I imagine just in general, Hoster would have a firmer hand when it came to dealing with Walder Frey. Maybe Walder would feel less bold, less inclined to go outside the the norms of his oath sworn to River Run if, if strong, proud Hoster Tully was still there and Walder didn't smell any weakness. It would, of course, have been very interesting and just a kind of dialogue character way to see him handle the Blackfish's return because they have that <laughs> longstanding feud. Uh, we've, we've got to see some some choice arguments, I'm sure, <laughs> if, if Hoster had still been around when Brynden came back. On the whole, I think you would have seen Rob have this strong uh, political advisor at his side that he doesn't necessarily have in, in the series, both because he's away from yeah. Catelyn for so long. And by the time Rob and Catelyn reunite in the Storm of Swords, Catelyn is has been through kind of so much grief and so many hard decisions that she's not exactly at her, her best, her highest state. No. Uh, so that would have been valuable to Rob. Uh, the one of, of all the events that Sir Travis lists that Hoster would have had to react to, uh, the retreat of Lysa is one that interests me the most because at the end there, he's almost confessing and clearly racked with guilt about what's happened uh, with his, his second daughter. So I wonder if he'd, if he'd been hale and whole, during that process, if he might have tried to go himself or send word or confessed in Cat- to Catalan directly in some ways to what was going on. And that's a, that's a whole can of worms right there because that could really have ripple effects in terms of Littlefinger's plotting. If, if yeah. Catalan and Rob were made aware of this backstory with Lysa and how that has influenced Lysa's decision making, that really could have broken up, broken open the, the whole barrel of monkeys as far as Lysa and Littlefinger's plan is concerned. So that's, that's the variable I'd be most interested to see in this AU where Hoster Tilly yeah. was still on top of this game. What about you, sir? Yeah, I think we see some interactions with Hoster Tully, and we don't see it directly. We we get a recounting of it from Brendan Tully yeah. to Catelyn at the end of A Game of Thrones, where apparently Hoster asked, <laughs> told Brendan to get married, apparently again, one more time, one final <laughs> time, which I think would have been fun to see in person, but I think it's, it's still a, a good scene at the end of A Game of Thrones or perhaps in a, at the start of A Clash of Kings. I, I, I'd be curious to see how Hoster would have reacted to a lot of these events as well. Again, I, I think you bring up the great point that he is a very canny political operator and that he seeks the king's approval before reacting to these outriders burning his way through the Riverlands. At the same time, again, I'm like you and that he's not my favorite of the Southern Ambitions conspirators or alleged Southern Ambitions conspirators, rather. I... I I what I've I think I've said this before, maybe on this pod this very podcast, is that I, I see Hoster Tully as more like normal Westerosi evil as opposed to like hugely amoral, awful evil people like Tywin Lannister or Littlefinger, in that he does bring fire and sword on Lord Goodbrook's village, but again, these are peasants that just happen to be in the way of the war and he was trying to bring Lord Goodbrook back into the Robert's Rebellion fold as opposed to supporting Aerys Targaryen. So the peasants became cannon fodder for that greater political struggle struggle that we see in in Robert's Rebellion. I, I like your, your idea about Lysa, like what that would have done and how that would have influenced the way that Catelyn and Rob reacted to the Vale. Because for so much of the book, they're like, why is the Vale just sitting out of this war? Like if we only had them on our side, we would have 30,000 additional swords. We would have 
canny commanders like Bronze Jan Royce. And you would have had guys like Lynn Corbray as well, who are fantastic swordsmen, apparently. And all these guys are sitting out the war and don't have any impact whatsoever on the War of the Five Kings, at least so far, perhaps. And I think we will potentially see them in action in the Winds of Winter, provided that Lynn Corbray survives Littlefinger Schemes, as well as Bronze Jan Royce, if he survives Littlefinger Schemes. So I, I would be curious. I think it would, I would think it'd be funny too to have, and I'm getting way off topic here, to have someone like uh, Harry the Heir in the War of the Five Kings, like how he would have been. Would he have been like bosom buddies with Rob Stark? Maybe. I don't know. But back to the, back to the question at hand. Yeah. I, I would be curious what Hosh would have done with Ned's imprisonment. I don't think he would have done much more than what he did, which is to call the banners and to be supporting of his Stark in-laws. I guess they're in-laws, in in the War of the Five Kings. I would be curious about Walter Frey, because I from Game of Thrones, later later in Catelyn's chapters, we get the we get the sense that Walter is really pissed off at Hoster for not coming to his current wedding, to his, his current wife, and that he because he wasn't there, he's kind of throwing a fit about it the way that Lord Walter Frey does, as the way he does. But yeah, I, I, I'd be curious to see what he would have done with Walter Frey if he had been so intransigent as he as he proved to be in the end of Game of Thrones, although he eventually supports the Stark cause, whether he would have been able to keep the phrase in line. I think that's a strong possibility. As much as I love Edmure Tully, the fact that his father is dead and he's the Lord of River Run and the Lord Paramount of the Riverlands, before he's, of course, replaced by by Lord Littlefinger and by the phrase means that the Riverlands do not have as strong of a leader and a more rash and less decisive leader than we see in Hostertully. So yeah, lots of AU possibilities for Hostertully, but I, you know, a lot of these AU questions, I'll have to, I'll have to admit up front, the answer is if Hostertully had handled Tywin, how he would have handled Tywin Lannister, the retreat of Lysa the Eerie, Catelyn's suspicions, Ned's imprisonment, Walter's sport, and the Blackfish's return, if Hostertully had been hale and whole, then it wouldn't have been a song of ice and fire. You know, if, if, if that makes sense, you know, I, not, not to be dismissive of the question or anything like, cause these AU questions are important and, and fun to think about, but that is not the story that we have, unfortunately. So they're good to think about, but you know, it's not the story that we have and that, that's okay. I like the story that we have. This is true. I think one other factor to consider is what Hoster would have thought of Rob crowning himself. I wonder how on board with that he would have actually been. Yeah. Uh, given given that the Riverlands are the ones who are going to have to be, even if Rob wins this war, the Riverlands are the ones who have to continually defend those borders. They're the ones who will forever be in danger from the Lannisters and right. from the Crown because they're right there. They don't have the neck to hide behind. The Riverlands uh, lack that kind of natural walling off from the rest of Westeros that allowed the kings in the north when they were just in the north to remain independent for so long. Yeah. The Riverlands do not have that capacity. So, I don't know. Hoster feels like, to me, from what we know of him, might be more convinced by that argument. I think it's Mark Piper makes right before Rob is crowned when he says, look, Renly already has two kingdoms at his back. If we join him, he'll have four. The Vale might come in. Dorne will have right. everything we need against the Lannisters. I feel like that might be more Hoster Tully's kind of speed. And yeah. I wonder if he would have argued in that direction in a more conclusive fashion than anyone else does, like preempting. Because in that scene, of course, the Great John doesn't crown Rob until they've already kind of exhausted their options and everyone's arguing with each other and there's no consensus. Yeah. Uh, with with Hoster there to kind of unite and gather the Riverlords at his back, maybe they would have come to a different solution. Who knows? But part of me thinks like he's less romantic than Edmure, less of a fighter than the Blackfish. I think he would have been less enthusiastic about Rob crowning himself. 
than some of the other people present at that scene. And obviously, as you say, that's an entirely different story, but that's something I would have been curious to see his reaction to. I think that would have been cool, too, to see that. And I think we might... I think you're right, and I think we get kind of a glimpse of that in his role in Robert's Rebellion, and that he wasn't ready to jump until he had the support of the Starks and the Baratheons and the Vale of Aaron all on his side. He wanted all of these folks, and, you know, he wanted... From what we can tell, he wanted the support of Tywin Lannister, too, because Lysa was offered to Jamie Lannister before yep. the start of the series. So he was looking for yep, yep. to build a huge coalition to take on the crown. And I think that, you know, it's kind of a side theory. It's one of the things that, you know, pe- a lot of people don't focus on, but it's one of my favorite, like, sort of mini theories is that Hoster's insistence that Brendan Tully marry Bethany Redwine was because he wanted to secure a navy in support of Robert's Rebellion because the Redwines have the largest non-royal fleet in Westeros, and it also undercuts Mace Tyrell, who would be a Targaryen loyalist in Robert's Rebellion. So I think you're spot on in that he would have been, he might have supported the idea of backing Renly, which I guess would have made him even an even worse person than, uh, than we already think of him right now. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, I, I think it's, it's also in keeping with him as a character and that he's looking to for the, the sure option and the sure bet to ensure that he. And the Riverlands don't, you know, burn down, which unfortunately ends up happening as a result of Rob being crowned king in the north, but was happening even before that as well. As you say, that fits with his behavior in Robert's Rebellion. And yeah, unlike the north, unlike the Vale, unlike Dorne, the Tullys don't have the options of just retreating behind their natural defenses. The river, the rivers provide some, but uh, nowhere near the extent they need to be protected from their more powerful enemies. So... Well, I don't like Hoster Tully much, I have to admit his caution has a sound political basis. If you come at the king, you best not miss. Hoster wants as much power behind him as he can before he makes his move. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you who are interested in a more in-depth analysis of Hoster Tully, our mutual friend and one of my co-writers for the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire WordPress.com site, Jim, a.k.a. Something Like a Lawyer, a.k.a. the founder of To Wage War podcast, has a three-part series on Hostertelli called Noble as a King, which he wrote back in 2013. So it's a a few years old now, but it's still fantastic, great information. And Jim does a fantastic job digging into Hostertelli as a character, as a political actor, and as a guy that is worth examining, if not necessarily liking. Jim always does good work, so check that out for sure if you haven't already. Absolutely. So, thank you, Sir Travis, for the question. In the same vein as questions, we wanted to announce our next Patreon-only episode for all $5 and above patrons at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And that episode is going to be a question grab bag. So, we will be taking all questions from all $5 and above patrons, and we will be answering them at the end of the month. And the date that the episode will come out is on Thursday, September 27th, 2018. So if you have a burning question about A Song of Ice and Fire, really about anything, I think we'll take any type of question. You're one of our $5 and above patrons. Come over and ask us. We'll be throwing up a post before this episode releases, but we'll remind you all about that before we actually get on the day that it's uh, on the day this episode comes out. And we'll look forward to seeing your questions and seeing what you guys can come up with. See if you can stump us. See if you can stump Emmett. I think that's what I'm interested in. If you can stump Emmett. <laughs> Bring it on, people. <laughs> Bring on your finest, finest thorny ethical fandom gauntlets. Bring on your trivia questions. I'll, uh, I'll fight them all one by one. Yes, indeed. I can't wait. I can't wait to see what they're <laughs> going to come up with now that I've thrown the gauntlet in order for people to challenge you specifically. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for that, sweetie. <laughs> you always know just what to say. I just, I just have the good words, the good words. So again, that episode is coming out on September 27th. 
Submit your questions at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIF if you're one of our $5 or above patrons. And if you're not a patron yet, feel free to check us out and see all the other benefits that are there for your perusal. So that is our question for the week and our patron announcement. And now we'll be talking about Game of Thrones Tyrion 4. Tyrion Lannister watches angrily as Chigan, a sellsword, butchers his horse, thinking that this is yet another debt the Starks will owe him. When Bronn, yet another sellsword, states that horse meat is good eating, Tyrion snarks that he's not a Dothraki and not fond of eating his own horse, especially one that his brother Jaime gifted to him on his 23rd name day. But eating horse is not the only thing that's going wrong for Tyrion. It's fucking cold up here in the mountains, and Tyrion is tired from all the previous riding and the riding to come. And who knew what awaited him at the end of the journey to the Eyrie? Damn her, Tyrion mutters. Damn her and all the Starks. Tyrion then recalls events right after the swords were drawn on him back at the end of the crossroads. Tyrion's man Jick had reached for his sword, but then Masha Heddle had shrieked for everyone to put away their swords. Tyrion had pushed Jick's arm down to ensure that he wasn't murdered at that moment and cautioned Catelyn that she was making a terrible mistake. He had nothing to do with the attack on Bran, on his honor as a Lannister. Well, that went over as well as shitting your pants at a funeral. Catelyn had held her scarred hands up, telling everyone that the dagger had left these marks on her, and everyone had reacted with reasonable anger that Tyrion had felt palpably. And though people cried out for Tyrion's death, he had managed to talk his way out of the business end of a sword, at least in that moment. If Lady Stark believes I have some crime to answer for, I will go with her and answer for it. Smart Tyrion. But it's the only recourse he can see. He can't fight his way through a dozen swordsmen with his three men. Scratch that. Actually, two men. Yorn had stepped aside as befits the Knight's Roll watch as to take no part in the affairs of the realm. Catelyn had ordered Tyrion's men to surrender their weapons, and when they were disarmed, Tyrion recognized Sir Roderick Cassell's voice when he said, Good. Masha Heddle again protested for Tyrion not to be killed here. Don't kill him anywhere, Tyrion urges in response. <laughs> but that's not the plan. They're going to Winterfell, Catelyn loudly tells everyone. But it was only in that moment that Tyrion took full stock of the room that he was not altogether displeased. Though a dozen swords had been drawn, there was about 50 people in total in the room. And the two fray men who had initially drawn their swords had sat their happy traitor's asses back down on the benches when their captain didn't move. Tyrion agrees to Winterfell, thinking that much can happen on the long road up to the ancient castle, and he tells the assembled crowd that his father Tywin would wonder what had become of him, and Tywin would pay a reward to the people who brought him the news. Of course, Tywin, being the puckered asshole of Westeros that he is, wouldn't do shit, but Tyrion would do his part to reward whoever brought Tywin the news. In response, Roderick had appealed for everyone to shut their damn mouths, but Tyrion knew better. Someone talks. Someone always talks. Perhaps it would be the free rider he had paid the gold to. Perhaps the singer who was looking to earn favor from a high lord in those frays would definitely tell Lord Walter what had happened. But they were off to ride regardless of how word reached Lord Tywin. Outside, the party mounted horses and Tyrion's hands were bound. Tyrion was just about to congratulate himself on how cunning he was, but then a hood had, was placed over his head and they had ridden off in a hard gallop. And the journey was awful. Rain soaked through his hood, and every time he tried to turn his head, he had nearly fallen off his horse, while the rope tied around his wrist bit into his skin. The next morning, they had dismounted and pulled the hood from Tyrion's head, and Tyrion saw something he didn't expect. Instead of the King's Road running north, it was a stony, narrow road with foothills all around him and mountains in the distance. The Eastern Road? You said you were riding for Winterfell! Well, yeah, Catelyn did say that, and loudly. Kind of the point, dude. If his father, that is Tywin, got word that Tyrion was going to Winterfell, his men would be galloping the wrong way. Flashing back to the present, Tyrion is still feeling that is still feeling an acute anger at being tricked. 
Deceived rather, Trick makes it sound like Catelyn and Tyrion have a playful relationship. Now in the mountains, there's no need for a hood. The land was mountainous, harsh, wild, and there were wild beasts and men around. But they kept moving, always forward, onto the Eyrie. The land they were in was technically the domain of the Arryns, and though John Arryn was dead, Catelyn's sister Lysa ruled in her son Robert's name. Tyrion hadn't known Lysa that well back when the woman was living in King's Landing, but he wasn't exactly looking forward to renewing his acquaintance with her all the same. The party has stopped for the moment, though. The men, woman, and horses are exhausted, and they can't lose another horse as, as they've already lost three. But Catelyn tells them that they'll lose more horses if they're overtaken by Tywin's men. Tyrion disagrees, though, thinking that any Lannister men are riding towards Winterfell by now, and he is then immediately told to shut the fuck up by Curlicket, a Bracken man-at-arms. Tyrion knew all their names by now. He had made it a point to know them, to thank them at some juncture down the road. But Catelyn says, no, let the imps speak. So Tyrion tells them that his father's men are in the wrong place if they've been dispatched at all. Even so, this land is dangerous, and if Tyrion dies, what's the damn point of taking him prisoner? When Catelyn snaps that maybe the point is that Tyrion will die, the dwarf disagrees, saying that if she really wanted him dead, she'd have had one of her men kill him earlier. The Starks do not murder men in their beds, Catelyn says. Well, neither does Tyrion. He had no part in the attempt on Bran's life, and he didn't own the dagger either. When Catelyn states that the assassin was armed with Tyrion's own dagger, Tyrion's anger rekindles. It was not my dagger. How many times must I swear to that? Lady Stark, whatever you believe of me, I am not a stupid man. Only a fool would arm a common foot pad with his own blade. Tyrion sees doubt in Catelyn's eyes, but Lady Stark asks Tyrion why Littlefinger will lie to her. Well, because he's a fucking liar. You should know that, Catelyn. And why should she know that, she asks? Well, because the dude has told everyone in the court that he had fucked Catelyn. Well, Catelyn is outraged. That is a lie. Curlicat drew his blade then and told Catelyn that he will take the dwarf's tongue at her word. Catelyn Stark never answers, Curlicat instead acknowledging that Peter Baelish loved her once, but it was real and pure and not to be made fun of. Why are you so mean, Tyrion? Why are you so foolish, Tyrion replies. Littlefinger boasts of fucking Catelyn all over the Red Keep. When Curlicat then grabs Tyrion's hair and holds a dagger to his throat, asking if he can bleed him, Tyrion gasps that if they kill him, any secrets will die with him. So Curlicat lets Tyrion go, and Tyrion asks Catelyn what Littlefinger told her about the dagger, and how Tyrion had gotten it. Well, as we learned back in Catelyn 4, Tyrion had gotten it during the tourney of Prince Joffrey's name day. Tyrion remembers, thinking back to when Jamie was on horse by Loras Tyrell, but just before he can pursue that thought further, riders. Uh-oh. Mountain clansmen are approaching, and the party is outgunned. Tyrion calls for Catelyn to arm him in his two cards. Roderick hears them approach, guesstimating that it's 20 to 25 mountain men on horses. Milk snakes or Moon Brothers by his account. Give me your word that you will put down your swords again after the fight is done, Catelyn demands. <laughs> okay, sure. Tyrion says with a crooked grin. On his honor as a Lannister. For the moment, Tyrion thinks Catelyn will spin his face, but just then she orders Roderick to arm them. Bronn gives Tyrion an axe, telling him to pretend he's splitting logs. Tyrion takes his place in the rear alongside of the now cowardly Marillion, and then the riders are on them. Arrows fly. Castle names are shouted. Frightened horses scream. Chicken Sword kills a clansman while Bronn whirls into the lot of them, killing men left and right. Arrows impact against the clansmen. A horseman rides on Tyrion and he hits the animal with his axe at the neck, sending the rider and horse sprawling into a terrified Marillion. Tyrion steps over and buries his axe in the rider's neck, and Marillion moans that he thinks he's bleeding. But he's not. It's only horse blood, Tyrion tells the singer. Tyrion tells the singer to pretend he's dead and gets back to fighting and observing the fight. 
The battle kind of runs in a blur after that. Blood, shouts, screams, arrows, swords, Bronn fighting, his man Jit cut down from behind. Curlicat is dead now too, but then he hears the screams of a woman. Tyrion turns to see that Catelyn is up against the stone face of the mountain with two dismounted and one mounted man maneuvering on her. For a hot minute, Tyrion thinks that he'll be okay with Catelyn dying, but even as he's thinking this, he's moving. His axe takes one of the clan dudes in the back of the knee. Another slashes him, but Tyrion slashes back and the man falls back until Catelyn comes up behind him and slits his throat like the goddamn badass woman who was only wrong that one time in her entire life does. Man, I'd forgotten that. Really foreshadow much, George? Yeah, we gotcha. And the rider bravely runs away. Anyways, the skirmish is just about over at that point. Bronn pulls Jake's nice boots off. He notices Tyrion, asks if it was his first battle. Yeah, it was. Well, now you need a woman, Bronn tells Tyrion. Tyrion glances over at Catelyn. I'm willing if she is. When Bronn laughs, Tyrion begins to see the shape of something to come. Anyways, the survivors take stock of their attackers, desert armor, notched swords, scrawny horses, and starving men. The clansmen had lost nine to their three. Sir Willis Wode, a free rider from Harrenhal, urges Catelyn to press on, but Cat wants to bury the men who had saved her life. No fucking time, Cat, and the ground is too rocky anyways. When Catelyn persists, Bronn threatens to ride away, and Catelyn finally relents after Sir Roderick joins with the others in urging Catelyn to move out before the Shadowcats or more clansmen attack. But now with all these dead men about, they have horses again. Tyrion mounts Jick's spotted gelding. Laris, another bracken man, catches Tyrion still holding onto his dirk. He asks for it, but Catelyn tells Laris that he can keep it and to give him the axe to boot. They may need it again. When Tyrion tries to thank Catelyn, she tells him to save his courtesies. She still doesn't really trust him. They ride out again, and Tyrion rides up to Merlion, the coward. Craven rhymes nicely with Raven. The imp then rides forward on up to Catelyn and Sir Roderick to tell Catelyn something very important. As I was saying before, we were so rudely interrupted. There is a serious <laughs> flaw in Littlefinger's fable. Whatever you may believe of me, Lady Stark, I promise you this. I never bet against my family. And that is a Game of Thrones Tyrion 4, a chapter which both sells us on the danger of travel in Westeros, especially up in the Mountains of the Moon, while also undermining Lord Creepyfinger's lie about the cat's ball dagger. I, you know, I kind of like this chapter, though. I can't say I like it as much as Tyrion 3 or Tyrion 5. What do you think, Emmett? Agreed as always, sir. It's more of a transitional <laughs> chapter than anything else. It's uh, it's focused on the environment, on the battle set piece, rather than the intimate character moments we got in Tyrion 3, back at Castle Black. Mm-hmm. Or the first real, like, life-on-the-line test of our POV's intelligence when we get to Tyrion 5. For me, like, Tyrion 5 is where... Tyrion story really begins. Yeah. Like that's where everything, all the kind of motifs and tones and situations that we associate with his storyline really start there. He's just been kind of going along for the ride up to this point. Yeah. And it is hard in terms of the context of the book we're going through. It's hard not to feel the tug back to the King's Landing chapters. Yeah. Because that's, that storyline has really just hit its stride with the hands turning and it's only going to get more and more compelling and urgent as the book goes on. But having said that, there is still a lot to like in Tyrion yep. 4, yep. especially uh, Tyrion's self-contained little arc within the chapter, as you noted, as he goes from cursing Catelyn's name to saving <laughs> her life. I think that's I think that's great. And it's a, that's a good framework for the chapter, which otherwise is, is pretty much just a point A to point B chapter. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it in that we have Tyrion saying, damn the Starks, damn that cursed woman at the beginning of the chapter, to three quarters of the way through the chapter and during the battle – Looking at Catelyn Stark and seeing that she's about to be killed, 
and thinking that he'd be okay with it, but then he's running up and saving her life. You know, it's kind of an interesting aspect about Tyrion. And it's interesting, too, how Tyrion develops here because he is he he's not like evil Tyrion from A Dance with Dragons yet. Although we can see maybe the kind of the kernels of that here a little bit of that kind of idea of like damn the Starks, you know, let me I will remember each of these people's names to thank them individually. So when when we get like evil Tyrion and nihilistic Tyrion, I think it'll probably be a better way of putting it in A Dance with Dragons. We see that is flowing from the character that we see in this chapter and the previous chapters and the chapters to come, of course. But he's not totally there yet. He still has a concern for maybe not innocence necessarily in his mind, but, you know, a person like Catelyn Stark, he doesn't want to see her necessarily die. I do wonder like why he did save her because he, he doesn't, it's not a conscious thought on his part. He's just moving. I think is how the chapter is how he taught Martin is how Martin puts it is that he's thinking about that he would be okay with her dying, but then he finds himself like running at the same time and then saving her life. So I mean, I'm curious what motivated him and whether it does speak potentially to him having the potential to be redeemed by the end of the story. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to get into his his motivations for saving Catelyn's life a little later on in the episode, because I think there are a number of factors at play here. But as the chapter starts, what makes it stand out is what a great follow-up it is to Catelyn 5. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that chapter, as we talked about in our episode on that, was a huge tipping point for the book and the story as a whole. It ended on this dramatic cliffhanger with all these swords being pointed at Tyrion's face, and you know, you're at the edge of your seat as a reader waiting to hear about what happened next. And the, this chapter does a, a great job of that. It doesn't open, of course, immediately afterwards. Martin does his <laughs> story structure that he likes for a chapter. He, he loves chapters after dramatic chapters. He loves the next chapter to uh, take place kind of well after that important yeah. event is taking place and then kind of fill in the backstory as it goes. Which is good because then he can he can start on an image that's particularly striking or thematically resonant as he does here. He starts with the the gripping image of the butchered horse, Tyrion's horse being cut apart by his captors. So immediately we get the sense of this kind of dangerous environment and that uh you know Tyrion is losing bits and pieces and has to kind of uh, play by his wits to keep control of what's <laughs> going on around him. And then, like I said, we back up to fill in Tyrion's side of the story. Uh, the memory was still bitter, is the quote. One moment he'd been ordering supper, and an eye blink later he was facing a room of armed men. Uh, so we're going back to, to that scene, but we're kind of getting his take on it in the way like, you know, some movies will do where they rewind to a previous scene so you can get it from a different perspective. Yeah. That's what we're getting getting here with Tyrion. It's, it's interesting how Tyrion's memory of the scene kind of stands in opposition to Catelyn's take, as we saw it in Catelyn 5. You know, <laughs> Catelyn was was uh, declaring publicly a threat, but Tyrion has to keep up the courtesies. He has to smile right. and play nice because he's the one actually in danger. In the same way with John, where when Ghost attacked him, Tyrion had to quash his anger and say, I should be very grateful for your kind assistance, John. <laughs> Tyrion's in the same position here. Where, ironically, he is the one who has been accused of breaking the law and breaking the rules, but he is he has to be the one to preserve those rules and preserve the decorum because he's at threat of not just being arrested in this moment, but being killed. Yeah. The quote is, Tyrion wrenched down Jick's arm hurriedly before he got them both hacked to pieces. Where are your courtesies, Jick? Our good hostess said no swords. Do as she asks. So, of course, he's pretending to be deferential to Masha Heddle, even though, of course, neither he nor Catelyn actually cares about Masha, and she <laughs> will end up an innocent victim of this of this feud between them, as we will see later in the book. But, of course, in reality, he wants to have no swords because that's a fight he's only going to lose. The quote is, Tyrion felt the anger all around him, thick and smoky, fed by the deep cuts in the Stark Woman's hands. Kill him! hissed some drunken slattering from the back. Another voices took up the call, faster than he would have believed. Strangers all, friendly enough only a moment ago, and yet now they cried for his blood like hounds on a trail. 
I mean, Catelyn was thinking of that scene as like her relying on the ironclad laws of feudalism, but Tyrion's looking at it as kind of a mob mentality almost. Like right. The way that in mob psychology, you can things can really turn on the drop of a dime, and people that were talking friendly a moment ago can become murderers in a second just on the kind of the energy in the room and like he says the cuts in Catelyn's hand acting as a vessel for this kind of for this anger he sees it as much more kind of chaotic and free-floating and a situation that where he could drown but also where he could prosper as you say he ends up liking his chances which is interesting from Catelyn's POV who's like she's in charge she's calling on these people they're gonna they're gonna come to her call to arms and everything is gonna work properly but uh, for him he points out uh, both to himself and to us that Oh, the Stark woman had been clever, no doubt of it. Quote, forced them to make a public affirmation of the oath sworn her father by the lords they served, and then call on them for succor and her a woman. Yes, that was sweet. Yet her success was not as complete as she might have liked. There were close to fifty in the common room by his rough count. Catalin Stark's plead roused a bare dozen. The others looked confused, or frightened, or sullen. Only two of the frays had stirred, Tyrion noted, and they'd sat back down quick enough when their captain failed to move. So you see a very different take. Tyrion the mm. Cynic point, poking holes in Catalan's the rules work as they will worldview. Uh, he's pointing out that, you know, some people just look confused. Some people look frightened that this isn't their, uh, isn't their fight. Sullen, as in they're kind of resenting all these nobles just messing with their peaceful night at the inn. <laughs> uh, the fact that the phrase were going to stir but then didn't when their captain fell to Duto suggests that there are lines of loyalty going on here beyond simply Catalan being a Tully. That the, the phrase kind of have their own internal organizational power structure that needs to be responded to. And uh, there's the line where Sir Roderick is telling everyone, you you best stay quiet about what you've seen here tonight. And it was all Tyrion could do not to laugh. Quiet the old fool. Unless he took <laughs> the hole in, the word would begin to spread the instant they were gone. So uh, Tyrion is now casting Catelyn and Sir Roderick's implementation of the feudal order as naivete. That what Catelyn thought of as getting everyone to do their duty, Tyrion thinks of as, as foolishness and a shallow look at how the world really works. So it, it nicely counters the image we were left with at the end of Catelyn 5, that Tyrion is, is poking holes in Catelyn's perfect system that she thinks is working just as intended. He's pointing out all the ways that it's not and the, the possibilities he has to manipulate it to his advantage. I, I like that Tyrion presents a third way, essentially, because when we looked at the Catelyn 5 chapter, we talked about how feudalism is working in this situation to bring some people to their death. But also Tyrion is saying like, hey, not everyone's standing up and drawing their swords, even despite these these oaths of loyalty that Catelyn is reminding the Harrenhal men, the Frey men, the Bracken men, that they are sworn to the Tahasser to Tully, that, you know, if only a dozen people have drawn their swords out of 50, that's, you know, only... A little over like twenty two percent of the of all the in, the in itself, and I do, I, you know, I just feel bad for Masha Heddle more than anything else in this chapter, because yep, same here she, she got she was killed for something that she had no part in that she was trying to avoid, and I think that's perhaps speaking as well to some of the other perspectives in that in, and that people are like, dude, like do not fuck up my world by like bringing your fight to me because. Stark, Lannister, I mean, I, I, I'm going to go Daenerys Targaryen season five here, but Stark, Lannister, Tully, Tyrell, they're all just spokes on a wheel. These are the people, they just go round and round and round, they'll fight and fight and fight, and we're just caught in the fucking middle. Like, man, that's that's just, why why would I do that? Like, there's there's not, there's no gain in it for me. I, I mean, Catelyn does say in this chapter that she'll reward those who will take 
get her safely to the Vale of Aaron, but that's not a sure shot by any stretch of the imagination, as we're going to talk about here in a moment, where several of these guys die. And by the next Catelyn chapter, I think it's, there's only like, what, five dudes who are still alive by the of the of the dozen that left? And Sir Roderick is so badly wounded that he can't even get up. He can't even get to the Eyrie itself. So there's real danger here. Catelyn called these folks to draw their swords and to fight on her behalf or potentially fight on her behalf. I can understand the rationale for people not kind of sitting it out. And I did, you know, I did call the, the phrase traitorous, I, I think, in my summary. But, you know, there's there's no real benefit for them to kind of jump in at this point either. I mean, they're the phrase are in as much danger as River Run is from a Lannister invasion, from the wrath of Tywin Lannister and what he could call down on the Riverlands and what he does end up calling down on the Riverlands, as we're going to find out here in a few chapters when when word reaches him back at Castle Rock. So, yeah, I think there's there's so much at work here in Tyrion's, um, what Tyrion is seeing. I think that he is smart enough to see that there is nuance in what is happening around him the way that Catelyn doesn't necessarily see because Catelyn doesn't seem to realize that not everyone is jumping up and down to try and get on her side, that she's she's seeing things through her own prism. And I like also getting Tyrion's prism too. And I think it's one of the the great things about George's writing is that for some events, you get multiple multiple perspectives on it. And this is one of those that I was definitely looking forward to to seeing how Tyrion and Catelyn both saw the end of the crossroads from their individual and unique perspectives. Yeah, it really fills it out thematically in terms of, yeah, Catelyn as the POV of the person inside the system who thinks it's working as intended and Tyrion as kind of the cynic outside. And I completely agree with what you were saying about Masha Heddle and everyone else in the end. This isn't their fight. Even if they owe loyalties, why would who's going to be the first to, to die on behalf of that? Who's, right. Who wants to step in line? As Lord Walder will say to Catelyn later, you know, all the... I could have sent my men sent sent my men south to River Run to fight with your brother, but all the ones who went south are either dead or running back north now. So what was gained? Right. And what's gonna what's gonna be gained here either? I mean, Catelyn of course doesn't know this, but Lysa has no intention of dealing with her her gift and her presence rationally, and will end up letting Tyrion slip through her fingers. So who really benefited here? You're gonna have all these men who die on the way of Sir Roger getting wounded, as you say, and. You know, the the only one who really profits from it, who changes his circumstances, is Marillion, who has right. nothing to do with any of this, who is on board because he thinks it's going to be an adventure, who avoids the battle, who gets in close with Lysa through what seems like really kind of sleazy, underhanded means, and proves himself a would-be rapist, and then <laughs> suffers a horrible fate at the hands of Littlefinger. And by the time you get there in A Feast for Crows, it's got really nothing to do at all with this original starting point. So, yeah, I think it is supposed to work as a... A critique of Catelyn's take on the situation and her understanding of how feudalism works. And we're going to get into that a little bit more when we get to the, the clansmen fight in terms of their relationship to all this. But yeah, it's, it's, it's important that Martin deconstructs the image he set up a little bit in Catelyn 5. And we're going to see Catelyn struggling with this as well when we get to her next chapter, Catelyn 6, which opens with her feeling very distraught and grief stricken about the men who have died to bring her to the veil and whether it was worth it and whether she's made a huge mistake. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I love Catelyn, she has made a huge mistake in this in taking Tyrion prisoner. Ultimately, in, in ways, as we talked about in our Catelyn 5 chapter, that she was not necessarily in the wrong given her perspective at the time of the events, but she was ultimately wrong as, as she's going to be finding out, or perhaps not totally finding out, but she will be suspecting by the end of her encounters in, in the Vale and so forth. But, you know, she's taking Tyrion along with 
Catelyn, or she's taking Tyrion along with her. And I, I love the fact that Tyrion is not as pissed off as you would imagine at being a prisoner. He is much more pissed off at how he was deceived in this chapter. That's what pisses him off the most. Yeah, that's, I find that really interesting in terms of Tyrion's uh, mindset in this chapter is how much focuses on his resentment, some of which is justified and some of which is not. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the chapter's opening words focus on the Stark Lannister vendetta kind of taking hold for him. Quote, as he stood in the pre-dawn chill watching Chicken butcher his horse, Tyrion Lannister chalked up one more dead owed the Starks. <laughs> So, you know, and Tyrion's emotional state in previous chapters was certainly kind of more cynical than the other POVs we're dealing with, but it's the, the tone has shifted. There's, there was a kind of like a rueful, amiable world weariness in his previous POV chapters, and now he's shifted right over into straight up just simmering rage. Mm-hmm. Damn her, he muttered as he struggled up the road to rejoin his captors, remembering, damn her and all the Starks. So this is, this is really just too bad. This is what a sorry fall this is from his kindness to Bran and his friendship with John. You know, you think, you look, you look back at those earlier scenes as like the fragile ray of hope in this gathering storm cloud between Stark and Lannister, Tyrion's friendship with these Stark boys. And now that, that seems to have evaporated. And of course he's entitled to be pissed off that he's been kidnapped and endangered for a crime he did not commit. I would also be pissed off about that. Yeah, sure. But as you say, there is more to it than that. He's like, there's this, the long passage you were pointing out where Tyrion looks around the room and realizes, ah, Catelyn's not quite as successful as she hoped. I'm going to go along with this. And there's the line that says he was congratulating himself on his subtlety when they <laughs> pulled the hood down over his head. So he's like, I have figured this out. I have mastered the situation. I think there's a subtext there of like, dad would be real proud. Like, uh-huh. I, I pulled off a Tywin. I, I'm, I have impressively handled this situation. Uh, and then... Quote, when he saw the narrow stony road, the foothills rising high and wild all around them, and the jagged snow-capped peaks on the distant horizon, all the hope went out of him in a rush. This is the high road, he gasped, looking at Lady Stark with accusation. The eastern road, you said we were riding for Winterfell. Catelyn Stark favored him with the faintest of smiles, and I love this line. Often and loudly, she agreed. No doubt your friends will ride that way when they come after us. I wish them good speed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Even now, long days later, the memory filled him with a bitter rage. All his life, Tyrion had prided on himself on his cunning, the only gift the gods had seen fit to give him. And yet the sevens time damned she-wolf cattle and Stark had outwitted him at every turn. And as you said, the knowledge was more galling than the bare fact of his abduction. So there's there's a lot of interesting things going on there. One is that Martin structure of the chapter. So we start off with Tyrion's, you know, saying, damn her and damn are all the Starks. And we think he's just talking about the kidnapping, the abduction. Mm-hmm. And then we read the chapter as it goes on. We get filled in the details and we go, oh, he was fooled. That's what's really driving this anger is that he was he was outwitted. So his pride was pricked and that really angers him. So that gets <laughs> a kind of some of the the darker side, the more Tywin-esque side of Tyrion, where his pride really matters to him. And he can be driven to dark emotional places by his pride being pricked like this. But it's also, it's also somewhat sympathetic in that he says his cunning is the only gift the gods had seen fit to give him. You do feel for Tyrion in that regard. Like he was sure. talking to John about, my mind is my weapon. That's all I've got. Look at my body. It's, you know, I can't do anything else in this society. So, you know, it is, it makes sense that he's attached so much pride to this and that he's feels defensive when that ability, when that skill is undercut or taken away from him. Because uh, he can't function as a warrior. There's no other kind of role for him in Westerosi society other than an intelligent man. So when that's challenged, he feels 
He feels much more uncertain. He understands his role as a hostage. Like, he's like, oh, I'm a Lannister. Okay, my dad is going to send out forces. You know, I can bribe people to help me out. There's, I understand this role. But the role as a hostage who's been outwitted, that's something that Tyrion can't accept, can't deal with. And that really uh, makes him hate Catelyn more than just being abducted. It's also nice, it nicely undercuts his, the certainty we were talking about previously, where he's figured out the situation and Catelyn is being naive. I mean, she is to a certain extent, but not completely. Because she did, she was able to realize that, oh, I, I'm going to be chased. Not all these people are just going to be loyal to me just because I'm saying so. I better lay a false trail so that the men who are inevitably pursuing me go off the wrong way. That is, that is a clever move on Catelyn's part. So it prevents this chapter from just falling into easy categories of Tyrion, smart and worldly, Catelyn, <laughs> naive and dumb. I'm glad Martin kind of avoided that easy breakdown. Yeah, I'm glad he avoided it too. What I think is cool about this chapter is that Tyrion thinks that his cunning is the only gift that gods had given him, but he turns out to be a pretty decent warrior, all things considered, given, you know, the fight that he's he's in. And he thinks well on his feet, using his axe and, of course, saving Catelyn Stark's life at, towards the end of the chapter itself. But before we even get to that, though, we have to, like, take account of the surroundings that we're in, the environment, the veil the Mountains of the Moon, the Eastern Road. These are all like really cool kind of Tolkien-esque type ways that Martin is describing what he's seeing. But I think it's important to get this perspective first from Tyrion, who is a world-weary, well-traveled man. And I think it's really cool that we get it from Tyrion's perspective, who would take account of all the things that he's seeing as he's progressing into the Mountains of the Moon. Yes, like you say, this is a arguably the first four in the series into kind of the Tolkien-esque small band of companions making their way through the, the wilderness. You could argue that the, the prologue is like that too, but uh, this this does feel very Lord of the Ringsy in terms of the mountain setting, uh, the clansmen showing up, uh, the focus on, you know, the the focus on the daily cycle of, you know, riding, making camp, taking their court of the horses, sleeping, getting up, doing it all again. This is, this is the first time Martin really uh, gets into that. And of course, we see that much more with later travelogue chapters from characters like Bran and Sam and so on. But this is really where Martin starts that in the series. And yeah, it's a, it's a new kind of environment. It's, it's such a hostile environment that it alone will keep Tyrion captive. As he says, that at a certain point, they stop relying on, on bonds and swords to, to keep him there captive because, quote, it seemed they did not fear his escape. And why should they? <laughs> Up here, the land was harsh and wild and the high road little more than a stony track. If he did run, how far could he hope to go, alone and without provisions? The shadow cats would make a morsel of him, and the clan that dwelt in the mountain fastnesses were brigands and murderers who bowed to no law but the sword. So, I mean, the irony is that the, the feudal order that gave rise to the Stark Lannister feud has now been completely left behind. They are outside the system that Catelyn was relying upon. They are outside the system that Tyrion was poking holes in, the system that gives them any kind of power or authority. The, you know, the basis for Catelyn's confidence in calling people uh, to defend her and defend her family, the basis for Tyrion's confidence that his gold and his name will avail him. All of those, none of those matter here. Catelyn's confidence, Tyrion's cunning, uh, they don't really mean anything when you're, when you're trapped in these mountain fastnesses. Now, Tyrion will eventually be able to trade on his gold and his name when he comes back through these mountains, uh, but that's only because he has a few seconds to talk before battle begins, and that's <laughs> that's really not the case here. So I think I think it is interesting context and environment for the Catalan Tyrion debate is that Martin has brought them to a place that sees them as identical, that sees them both as outsiders and would not bother to make this distinction between them that they think is all important. 
It's something that Martin repeats in A Dance with Dragons, where you have Asha Greyjoy traveling with Stannis' army, and eventually they take off the shackles from Asha because they're like, fuck it, run if you want to, but you're not going to make it far in this in the snow. And the same thing goes for Tyrion here, where they're like, fuck it, you're not going to make it that far here in the mountains because either a wild animal is going to get you or a wild man is going to get you, and you have really no chance of survival unless you keep coming with us to the Vale of Aaron. So, I mean, it, the same thing is going here in, in Tyrion's mind in that he essentially has no choice but to go with Catelyn up and face Lysa, provided that he survives transiting through the Eastern Road. And, you know, it's something that's unfamiliar to him. It's not his his personality and what drives him and what he believes is his most important part of himself is not going to necessarily get him out of this situation, though out of the situation Getting up the road, although it will get him, as you said, as you said, well, very well, of course, get him coming down the road. But that's that's all to come in a, in a few chapters down the road. But yeah, it's uh, it's not a good place for anyone to be, for sure. Certainly not. And he he's able to talk himself out of the situation both at the Erie and coming back down the the high road because he's able to bribe people. He's able to bribe more the turnkey, without whom he wouldn't have even been able to get a second shot at Lysa. He's able to bribe the clansmen who are, uh, then deliver him safely to his father. He can't do that here. He can't bribe Catelyn yeah. because she's already, in, you know, she has two wealthy families backing her and she hates him ideologically enough to not even consider it. And he can't really effectively bribe most of the men around her. The only exception to that is Bronn because Bronn is also kind of outside the feudal structure. He's not Sir Willis Wode. Uh, he's not one of the Bracken men at arms. He's not part of a system of feudal obligations that uh, ends with her at the top of the pyramid. He just signed up for the gold, which means he can be swayed over the Tyrion side. So I think you can see Martin working on the politics a bit in the background uh, outside just the Catalan-Tyrion fight. Although, yeah, this, the center of the scene does ultimately come to a Catalan-Tyrion discussion. It's interesting that we have the Starks and Lannisters kind of circling each other warily throughout the book up to this point, but this is the first time they really start to talk yeah. about the fight that's developing between their families. Doesn't really go anywhere. Doesn't obviously stop the war. Otherwise, it would be quite a different story. But it is interesting to see them come face to face and have them come face to face, uh, manipulated by a third party, which is kind of the issue they're they're talking around here is is how Littlefinger manipulated them into this point. But Tyrion starts by bringing up the point that we were just talking about that at this point now they're both in danger and mm -hmm. at, at a risk of having coming this far for nothing in a land that doesn't care about the distinctions between them. Quote: This is a cruel land, Lady Stark. You find no succor until you reach the Vale, and each mount you lose burdens the others all the more. Worse, you risk losing me. I am small and not strong, and if I die, then what's the point? <laughs> like Catelyn is framing Tyrion as this terrible danger, this child murderer, this poisoner who has to be dealt with, but Tyrion is pointing out, like, as far as the mountains are concerned and the clans within them, I'm just a dwarf, <laughs> and I'm I'm not especially strong, and I could easily die here. I can't keep up the space, so you have to set aside our feud for the second and think practically about the situation you're in. Um, and as you, as you said, you know, Catelyn snaps back that maybe she does want Tyrion dead, and Tyrion points out that she easily could have made that happen back at the inn, to which she responds, the Stark do, Starks do not murder men in their beds, which really gets at the kind of the ethical ground they're dealing with here, is the, yeah. the accusation she's made against Tyrion, and she's making the case that uh, they are of a different category. It's, it's a very similar to when Ned tells Cersei later in the book when Cersei's asking, how are you different from me or Robert or any of us? And he says, for starters, I do not kill children. <laughs> and Catelyn is trying to make that same distinction here, that they may both belong to the same feudal order in the eyes of the common folk, in the eyes of the clansmen, but for her, there is a, a moral distinction to be made. But Tyrion says, nor do I. I tell you again, I had no part in the attempt to kill your son. 
And uh, it really does come down to to Littlefinger as the instigator and the uh, person who exploited this difference between them. And uh, they have such opposing perspectives on him. Catelyn Stark stared at Tyrion with a coldness on her face such as he had never seen. Peter Baelish loved me once. He was only a boy. His passion was a tragedy for all of us, but it was real and pure and nothing to be made mock of. He wanted my hand. That is the truth of the matter. You are truly an evil man, Lannister. And you are truly a fool, Lady Stark. Littlefinger has never loved anyone but Littlefinger. <laughs> and I promise you that it is not your hand he boasts of. It's those ripe breasts of yours and that sweet mouth and the heat between your legs. So this brings us right back around to that same dynamic of romantic idealism versus disillusioned cynicism that we were talking about so much with the Hans Turney chapters, with Sansa, with Sandor, Loras Tyrell, Sir Hugh with the Vale. This is the same dis- dispute that Catelyn and Tyrion are having. Catelyn is saying, you know, Littlefinger made his mistakes. He was he was overly rash, but that, that love of his was real. It was the romantic <laughs> ideal. It was pure and nothing to be made fun of by cynical men like you. Kind of similar to what she'll say to Jamie when she confronts him at Riverrun. Like, the world is evil because of men like you. Both Tyrion and Jamie respond to that with, with, uh, with mockery and, and Tyrion pointing out that, no, Littlefinger is not remotely the, the Sansa in this situation. He's not a romantic <laughs> idealist any longer. He's, he's a complete cynic and he's, he's spent his time at King's Landing not talking about the chivalric dream of marrying his lovely lady. He's talked very, very crudely and bluntly about your body. And how he claimed it and how he, he has that over you and over Ned. That's what he's been talking about. So th- it's almost as if Catelyn is the Sansa and Tyrion is the Sandor here. <laughs> They're having the same kind of conversation as those two had in the Hands Tourney. With Catelyn holding up the romantic ideal and Tyrion poking holes in it. But of course, as we know, Littlefinger used to be a romantic idealist. Has just kind of fallen into his current position. And I think you could probably say the same about Tyrion. So it's not... It's not that people separate out into these two categories. It's that it's a spectrum you kind of slide up and down throughout the course of your life in different situations. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant point that you have the great connection between Sansa and Catelyn. And it's it's cool, too, that those two chapters are fairly close in, in proximity in terms of their chapter order. So it seems like that Martin is drawing a point between the two, as we're going to see here. And also, you know, for that matter, too, from, from the last editor chapter – with Robert and Robert's conception of himself as being this brilliant, great, as being this great warrior who can hold his own these days, just the same as he did back when he was Robert Baratheon wielding his war hammer across Westeros during Robert's Rebellion. I think it's a great theme that you see being drawn across these three, these three middle chapters in A Game of Thrones that really helps to set the foundation for that this being a fan, that, that this is a fantasy story, but the reality of the tales and the stories that you believe is not necessarily the truth. And that, you know, Littlefinger only loves Littlefinger. Like that is the the theme that's going to be repeated throughout this story. And it's going to be a theme that unfortunately Catelyn is going to learn to her dismay by the end of her arc in the Storm of Swords. And I guess on into Feast and Dance and the Winds of Winter when she becomes Stoneheart too. But yeah, I think it's, it's, it's fantastic um, too, that we get Tyrion, really seeing through Littlefinger here. And I think this also is really cool because it helps set up that Littlefinger Tyrion dynamic that we're going to be exploring, especially in Clash, because I think it's one of my favorite dynamics where Tyrion is trying to figure out ways that he can remove Littlefinger, but he finds him so indispensable for whatever reason uh, that we're go- that he's that he can't find a way to actually get rid of Littlefinger, despite the fact that Littlefinger is trying to get him fucking killed at this point. And he doesn't have any, Littlefinger has no particular bone to pick with Tyrion, right? There's no, 
like they were in love with the same, they had the same prostitute and they were both, you know, interested in her and she chose Tyrion because he was, he had more money or something like that. There's nothing to set the foundation for the dispute between Littlefinger and Tyrion besides Littlefinger just finding Tyrion convenient and a convenient pawn piece in order to advance his own interests in sowing, in sowing chaos in Westeros. But all of that great conflict, that inner conflict and that meta conflict that's in A Game of Thrones is interrupted by actual conflict because right after that, the wildlings appear or the clansmen appear in this case. Yes, and this ramps up the scale of conflict in the series. We've only seen kind of one-on-one duels previously, and we'll see, of course, a few more of those down the line. We're not a quite full-scale army-on-army combat. That'll wait for a later Tyrion chapter. Uh, The Battle of the Green Fork is the first time we really see that. Uh, But this is an an escalation to multiple uh, combatants coming at each other, the first time we really see that in the series. And it's interesting that it's, as with the Green Fork, a a battle from the POV of a non-warrior. Tyrion (laughs) is not experienced in battle. This is his first battle. So that that provides kind of a a different detached take on things. And if we were seeing our first battle from the POV of someone like Jaime, for example, or John, someone who's who's been trained for this kind of fight. And uh, as we were talking about earlier, it's fought against people with no investment in the Stark-Lannister feud. That it's, it's very ironic that the first blood drawn other than Bran being pushed from the window in this fight isn't between the Starks and the Lannisters it's both of them getting attacked by people who are completely outside the feudal structure Uh, and of course Tyrion and Catelyn have the right to self-defense I think there's a a critique being made here in Martin's part that the two of them have essentially brought their feud onto lands of people who have nothing to do with it the clans were just kind of minding their own business and now Tyrion and Catelyn are are trying to dragging their fight through their turf as with, like, you know, Nymeria's wolf pack in the Riverlands, the clansmen in the mountains aren't making distinctions between uh, Stark and Lannister, between between the, the fish and the lions. They're they're ready to fight them all and, and take what they can from the losers. So when Sir Roderick you know, draws his sword and cries, Winterfell, as he rides into battle, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a classic heroic image, like so many others from the genre. There's nothing more fantasy, I think, than someone holding up a sword and crying out where they come from as they as they... Uh, stride into battle. That's like one of the er images of the genre. <laughs> but, you know, put it in context. Like, he's yelling Winterfell at these clansmen who have no idea what Winterfell is. Yeah. Or when Sir Willis Hold calls out Harrenhal, or when Ter- Tyrion thinks of yelling out Casterly Rock. Like, these, these are just noises as far as the clansmen aren't concerned. This isn't striking fear into their hearts. This isn't establishing the battle lines. Like, Winterfell and Casterly Rock and Harrenhal are just leagues away and completely outside their experience. So it's really just... These battle cries are for their own comfort, for their own identity. It's it's not not exactly the again not exactly the chivalric ideal. You can see Martin kind of poking holes in a bit here. There's something absurd about the way these these soldiers are forming up for battle here, uh, in in the context of the mountain clansmen and the kind of again the fact that the feud that has led them here is not the feud that's leading to blood spilling. I think that's Martin kind of critiquing the feud a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's also potentially symbolic of what. The role of the others will be in the story and that the others, the White Walkers, they won't care if you're holding a Stark banner, a Lion of Lannister. They won't care if you're a a Tully of River Run. They won't care if you're the Blackfish. They won't care about any of that shit because they're here to just bring chaos and bring death down on on these people here and take what they can. You know, the others, in the others case, they're after the hot blood. Apparently, if you, if you listen to old Nan stories of, of the men who are living, men and women who are living in the time. But here, the clansmen are after their own survival. Cause I think it's an interesting point is after the battle is done, 
that they take stock of these dudes and they're all starving. They're all, they've got dented armor and the, you know, the one leader of, of the battle is this Tyrion thinks that he's this great clansman riding astride his horse with his great sword. And he takes a look at him. He's like, nah, this guy's got his, his ribs are sticking out. He hasn't eaten in a minute. He's got his great sword that he thinks is so awesome is like chipped and like rusted. And this, this is not, this is not a fair fight. Even if they are outnumbered, Catelyn's party has the weapons. They have the armor, they have the training, they have the discipline and they have a full belly. And these guys don't have any of these advantages that Catelyn Stark's party has. And I mean, they are the have nots of Westeros. I mean, the, the clansmen are not necessarily sympathetic characters in the story, Although you do get some kind of more rounding of them and they become, I guess, I don't know how to describe them. They're, they're, they're kind of like, uh, they kind of become humorous when they're down in King's Landing because you have all these barbarians essentially existing in the one civilized place in Westeros and you know, Shaga, son of Dolph and all those guys. I, I, I mean, I think their names are great too. But, you know, they're, um, they're, they're civilization's outcasts and they're, they get, beaten the shit out of by civilizations in cast in cast civilizations by the, by those that have benefited from civilization around them, but they maintain their freedom. They maintain their independence. And, you know, that's, that's something, I guess. Yeah. They definitely become more comic relief when you get to King's landing and they're backing up Tyrion. And it's like you say, the joke is that, uh, these, you know, intense gruff, uh, bearded men down from the mountains are, are wandering through these kind of filigree, delicate hallways. The, <laughs> yeah, the, the, they have no place in the world of Varus the Spider, but here they are. Yeah. But yeah, and this, uh, you make a great point. I think Martin dwells on that, on how kind of unimpressive the clansmen really are when you come down to it because he wants to establish that these are not like, you know, all powerful, inhuman savages out of your nightmares, that these are just these are poor people who are, are completely outcasts in, in the, the feudal order that has given Catelyn and Tyrion so much. And they, they don't really stand a chance. Like, yeah, the, the final kill count is nine of them versus three of Catelyn's party, even though they're on the clansman's turf. So really, you know, the clansmen are the ones coming out more poorly here. And as we'll learn a little later, they have arguably a more admirable political system in that they are somewhat democratic and even let women vote. So yeah, who really who who really are the good guys and the bad guys here? You can see Martin uh, pontificating on that. He you know he doesn't hit you with a sledgehammer. Uh, it's it's just noting in passing that Tyrion points out that how you know kind of that they're starving that they don't have proper weapons. But it is making the same point that Donald Noy made to John, which is think about the background of your opponents, think about the resources they've had and not had, and yeah. think about how that makes you feel about your fights and your victories. You, you know, this also kind of does a. a- a good job of setting up what it's going to mean when Tyrion decides to arm these dudes at the end of the Game of Thrones. You, Absolutely. There's, uh, I don't know, for those of our listeners, there's a, a game that I played many years ago now called Mass Effect, where there's a race called the Krogans. If you guys, I'm getting real geeky here. I'm sorry. Whereas <laughs> there's, there's a race called the Krogans who are, they're not spacefaring. They're not spacefaring race as opposed to the rest of the civilizations, but Eventually, they're like, hey, these guys are great fighters. We're going to give them, you know, the ability to fly through, fly spacecraft and make them warriors. And one of the characters like, look, we 
what happened was that you essentially gave cavemen the atomic bomb and like that's what you guys did here and so what Tyrion's going to do at the end of a game of thrones is essentially give the clansmen the atomic bomb in order to blow up the veil of Aaron. as we're probably going to see in the winds of winter i'm assuming at some point oh yeah i'm assuming timitson of timit if if no one else is certainly going to uh, take a hand in the the resentment between noble houses developed over the course of the veil plot line leads Tyrion to kind of hijack the clansmen and bring them in on it and they certainly uh, get something out of it. They get, uh, you know, horses and armor and, and nicely fashioned swords and, you know, all the kind of in-universe modern weapon technology you need to really stand a chance against the Knights of the Veil, as opposed to the kind of homemade sticks and stones they're working with here. Mm-hmm. But Tyrion doesn't do that because he wants to elevate the clansmen, because <laughs> no. he thinks it's an injustice unto them because he likes their political system. He criticizes it later on, in fact. It's, it's purely part of his vendetta. He's unleashing them uh, on the veil to get back at Lysa and to get back at House Aaron, even though if the clansmen do attack the veil in force, uh, Lysa will already be dead, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who did any harm to Tyrion is gone, and they're just going to – the damage that will be most heavily inflicted will be on the small folk of the veil yep. who did nothing to the clansmen, who did nothing to Tyrion. Yep. So it's, it's hard to glean any justice from that. It's just, again, another – Part of that back and forth fight that, as you say, Danny talked about in the show, that Jorah talked about in the last Danny chapter about the common people just praying to be left out of the Game of Thrones and they never are. Mm-hmm. And as we were saying earlier with Masha Heddle, there's just there's just no way. It's not even just that both sides are praying on them. It's that there's no way out. There's right. no screw you guys, both you guys, a plague on both your houses. I'm leaving because yeah. what happens then? Then you get the clans. Then you're just exiled from society. You have no resources, and then the nobles will show up anyway, right. <laughs> drag you into their disputes, even if you try to leave them behind. There's just no way out. So that's that's all quite grim. So the, to talk <laughs> on a somewhat happier note. As we were saying earlier, there is this great little moment when Tyrion steps up to defend Catelyn as the three clansmen are kind of horning in on her and she's only got the dagger to defend her, her, herself. Tyrion thinks to himself, I'll let him have the bitch. Uh, but then he, he moves in to defend her. And as you say, he does it kind of instinctively without thinking about why he's doing it. Uh, in the same way that he instinctively moves to defend young Griff when they're on the Shy Maid <laughs> and the Stoneman attack and Dance with Dragons. In the same way that he saves Jorah from a, the grisly fate of a pit fighter during the slave auction yeah. at Marine. And Pen- Penny even asks him, why did you do that? You know, Jorah's did nothing but beat and kidnap you. He's never helped you out. And Tyrion thinks to himself that he, he doesn't really even know why. So that I do like that sense that there is kind of this instinctive decency buried deep down inside Tyrion. Yeah. Uh, it, it definitely gets r- repressed in a lot of ways and it doesn't remotely make up for the terrible things he does. <laughs> but it's still there even as late as Dance. And I do like seeing that emphasized here. I do also think, though... Part of the reason Tyrion saves Catelyn is that right before the fight, it seems like she was starting to believe him or starting to listen to him at least about the dagger and about the 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 attack on Bran. So maybe Tyrion is thinking, well, if she dies, I'm left with like the the men at arms and Sir Roderick and, you know, no one who will be remotely sympathetic to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe Catelyn is the one person I can persuade. Maybe she can help me out a little bit. And I think it's also Tyrion is... Uh, as he says, we'll say later, like he's he doesn't like being manipulated. And he, I think he's getting the sense here that Littlefinger has lied to Catelyn and that there is some deeper game being played here. And I think he's curious about that and realizes he needs her alive and her information and her voice to make any kind of sense of what's going on here. So I think it's both instinctive decency on his part, but also, uh, again, that political pragmatism of like, oh, I might not like her and she's kidnapped me, but she's also my best chance at this point. Yeah, I think that's a great defense of... 
what Tyrion does, because I actually came into this chapter and out of this reading this chapter a few times, not being sure why Tyrion did it. But I think you make a great point of connecting it to Tyrion's decent acts later in the story. I mean, even in Dance, which, you know, we talked about, I talked about earlier as, as being a place where Tyrion goes into some dark nihilistic places, that he still has something human, something decent inside of him, even if it's buried in layers of irony, nihilism, and you know, somewhat evil deeds and very evil deeds at some points. But that's all to come as we're going to be finding out in the years to come as we're going to be doing this podcast. <laughs> but this wouldn't be a, a Game of Thrones chapter if there wasn't Martin poking holes in the feudal structure with the very end of this chapter. Yeah, right at the end. We've been talking, you know, throughout the chapter about how the scene at the end and this dynamic with the clansmen is Martin kind of undercutting the, the feudal worldview in that social order. And we do see at the end when Catelyn is saying, we have to have to bury these men, have to give them some kind of proper burial. They died for us. They died for me. We owe them this. And uh, Bronn speaks with the the pure pragmatic angle of gather all the stones you want, Bronn told her, but do it without me or Chigan. I have better things to do than pile rocks and dead men. Breathing for one. <laughs> he looked over the rest of the survivors. Any of you who hope to be alive come nightfall, ride with us. My lady, I fear he speaks the truth, Sir Roderick said wearily. If we linger here, they will be on us again for a certainty we may not live through a second attack. Tyrion could see the anger in Catelyn's face, but she had no choice. May the gods forgive us then. We will ride at once. So that's it's a nice emotionally complex moment where it makes you like Catelyn that she takes this seriously. That unlike a lot of nobles, she's not just thinking of uh, her soldiers as ca- cannon fodder. That she respects them as people and she's trying try to honor the sacrifice they've made, even though they're so far from home. Yeah, and she can't do the rituals properly. She wants to give them something. Uh, but that kind of decorum doesn't survive the harshness of the mountains. It doesn't survive war and the Game of Thrones and. So by the time you get to Catelyn's next chapter, she's talking about how her heart feels like stone, wink, wink, because she's had to kind of, she's had to kind of repress this, this desire to do right by these men because they're, they're dying all around her. And if she allows herself to think about that too long, she'll realize it was for nothing. So she, she feels the need much like Danny to, to think if I look back, I am lost. Yeah. And she's just going to kind of put this complication behind her. But yes, I think it is Martin pointing out that, you know, it's, it's good of Catelyn to want to do this for these men, but really they're only in this situation because she brought them here. And now that they're in this situation, she has to kind of think more harshly. She has to think more like Tyrion, more like Bronn. Yeah. But thinking like those guys does lead her to dark places herself, as we're going to find out in her Stormheart arc. So that's a, that's a very good point. There's no easy answers here, which is really what part of makes the series great. Yeah. No easy answers. And it's, it's, it's hard too, because I think, I am incredibly sympathetic to Catelyn Stark, as readers might and listeners might uh, might know. They might have picked up on that. Might, yeah, but picked mm-hmm. up on that. But at the same time, like I want to be like kind of shake her, be like Catelyn, like you've you've brought these guys to this point where they're all dying or they're all in significant serious danger because you've believed Littlefinger and you've taken these guys on the Eastern Road and as cunning as that might have been in that moment, it is a dangerous. It is a dangerous, dangerous trade-off that you're engaging in and not being caught by Tywin's men. Now, I would say that it's probably better for Catelyn that she chanced the Eastern Road as opposed to going north and being caught by the Lannisters. Because, you know, as we're going to find out at the end of a game, towards the end of a Game of Thrones, the Lannisters are not gentle soldiers, as we're going to find out, as they're going to burn their way across the Riverlands and... You can imagine someone like Sir Amory Lorch being dispatched to like pick up Catelyn. Like that's 
not something that, that that doesn't sound like something that's, that would be pleasant for her or pleasant for any of her party. And they would probably come in much greater force and they would be well-armed and well-trained as well as opposed to these clansmen who are not well-armed and not well-trained. But it does speak, though, to the danger that Catelyn is posing to these men. And it does kind of, again, take a swipe at the, the feudal structure that these guys are all dying for Catelyn Stark because she has the status in Westerosi society that affords her the ability to order people around, even if they've never met this woman in her entire life, which you can't, which, you know, as we talked about in Catelyn 5, she doesn't know any of these guys. They don't know her, but they're still riding with her because she is Lady Catelyn Stark of Winterfell. And that's the way that there's the society works is that they have to obey the orders of those who sit at a higher station in Westeros than they do. And they all, I mean, like I said earlier, I think six or seven of them die on the road to the Vale. And the ones that make it there, I mean, Gosh, again, you were saying this early too. Berlian's the only one that really kind of makes bank temporarily, but even even he has a uh, has a sad story by the end of by the end of his story. Yeah, he ultimately has no real defense against the high lords around him, and Catelyn has to to own that. She has to own the consequences. She has to own the context she's in. I think Tyrion has a he has his own blind spots, of course, as we've only started to get into. But I think his position as uh, as a dwarf in Westerosi society has opened his eyes up to some of these factors in a way that they haven't been for Catelyn. As we said, he's very used to having to quash his anger and play nice in the situation because that's the only way to get through a situation <laughs> when you're that physically vulnerable in Westeros is you have to make everyone laugh, as Penny will talk to him later about in dance. You have to make the big people happy. That's something Tyrion has had to deal with. And it's, it's, it's kind of changed his perspective in a lot of ways, as we see when he uh, brings out the Dothraki in this chapter. Yes. Sometimes in these chapters, as I'm reading them, I find little catches of things that I will remember or half remember and have to do a little research on. And there's a line from the start of the chapter where Bronn is talking about eating Tyrion's horse and how no one's going to go hungry. And that's the way the Dothraki do it. They consider it a delicacy to eat horse. And Tyrion thinks to himself, quote, the Dothraki ate horse in truth. But they also left form children out for the feral dogs who ran behind their calisars. Dothraki customs had scant appeal for him. And so we have to go back two chapters to Tyrion 2, where he thinks, quote, Had I been born a peasant, they might have left me out to die or sold me to some slavery's grotesquerie. The connection Tyrion's making here is like the rest of the world, like they're not going to treat me well at all. Like the Dothraki, yeah, they eat horse, but they also like leave their their dwarves out to for the dogs to eat them as babies like that's an awful awful thing but it's not that much different from Westeros or where Tyrion if he had been born a peasant he might have also been left out to die or sold to slay sold as a slave and that's um I mean it's it's good on Tyrion to recognize that but at the same time we are talking about a society in both Westeros and Essos that you know as much as we the Dothraki are framed as barbarians. How much better are the Westerosi that they would leave their own children out to be eaten by dogs or die in the cold? That, that, there's not really any moral difference between the two. And I think that Tyrion's correct in pointing that out. Yeah, it's an interesting note on that, that theme, again, of relationships to the feudal order we've been talking about, where Tyrion, of course, uh, despises his father, and for good reason, and is very kind of cynical about the, the feudal Game of Thrones. But at the same time, you can see him recognizing that, yeah, he... He hit the lottery as a dwarf because he had been born under any other circumstances. He probably wouldn't have lived this long. Yeah. So it's that that's that love hate relationship he has to the the system around him, which we'll we'll see again when we get to the eerie proper, which he's he's treated shabbily, uh, but he can also bank on his name and exploit his father's riches in order to get him out of that situation. 
So that's something I've always enjoyed about Tyrion's character is his his com- complex relationship to the power structure in which his position as a dwarf makes him allows him like Sandor to kind of see through its its illusions and its false promises but he he also was relying on it to keep him alive. Speaking of people that exploit the feudal structure to keep themselves alive, I think that takes us to our likes and our dislikes. And I think the first I'll kick it over to you cuz I like yours better than my like all about Lord oh, Littlefinger. Yeah, so of course a lot of this chapter, especially the direct conversation between Catelyn and Tyrion, takes place under the shadow of Littlefinger's lie, him framing Tyrion for the assault on Bran's life that uh, led to Catelyn snatching up Tyrion in the first place. And as I've said before, I'm not a huge fan of uh, how Martin kind of thumbs the scales for Littlefinger in these first couple books in the series and keeps allowing him to escape the consequences for some really risky actions he takes. Uh, the fact that Littlefinger makes out of this lie alive is a little eyebrow raising when all it take, when all it would take are the Starks and Lannisters comparing notes honestly for 45 seconds <laughs> to figure out what happened here, because Littlefinger is extremely blatant about it. But w- what I appreciate, what makes that work better for me than it might otherwise is that Martin grounds the communication breakdown between Tyrion and Catelyn in their personalities, not just their opposing politics. Like, they, they do come very close to realizing what's going on in this chapter, but Catelyn's a little too proud. Tyrion's temper gets the better of him as it will again in the Eerie when he thinks to himself, me and my bloody mouth, if I ever just learned to keep it shut. So it's believable that these two individuals, smart as they are, would fall short of the mark. So that's something I like about the chapter as well. It's not, not Martin's best plot work, I think, with Littlefinger in this book, but he does manage to make it plausible on a personality level. And I do appreciate that. Yeah, I think you're right, is that it's plausible. But, you know, I, I love how, like, the chapter ends with Tyrion saying, I never bet against my family. But that doubt that Tyrion seeds in Catelyn's mind in this chapter over whether he was actually involved in Bran's attempted murder doesn't really pan out much. You know, for some reason, Tyrion never gets more cunning about that than he does at that point, because the next chapter has him talking suspiciously about how he's innocent as a little lamb. It sort of undercuts that dynamic that you have here because yes absolutely if they had sat down for 45 minutes and pieced together what Catelyn knew what Tyrion knows then they would have been like oh well Littlefinger's playing all of us false for we don't know the reason yet but there's some reason for whatever reason he's playing us false and the fact that they don't put it together and that it not it doesn't do wonders for Littlefinger. It, it makes it seem like that George is really thumbing the scale very hard to ensure that Littlefinger survives somehow throughout the throughout this book and into the next book. And th- that is going to be one of my main criticisms of, of Tyrion's chapters in A Clash of Kings, how Littlefinger somehow survives that book as well with Tyrion having all the power in the world, knowing that Littlefinger had tried to get him killed back in this chapter here in A Game of Thrones. And somehow he makes it out because he's seen as so indispensable. But is he really indispensable? Is he? Is he? It's, even if he is, like, it just, it it really kind of blows my mind that Tyrion never tells Tywin about this. Yeah. Like, even if you can't prove it necessarily, even if you need him around, how can you not let Tywin know, hey, we're being completely played for fools here? As much as Tywin comes to, I think, personally resent Rob Stark and want him dead for that reason— Tywin would be furious to know he'd been manipulated into war, especially by someone like Littlefinger. So, right. yes, I think it is one of Martin's weakest points in his overall uh, plot setup is uh, how hard he has to work and just how blatant it is that he's keeping Littlefinger alive. Like, I'm fine with, you know, Martin making unlikely things happening. That Like, that's just part of storytelling. Like, you just need mm-hmm. random chance events to occur. You need 
uh, people to escape by the skin of your teeth. That's just the drama. Sure. But Martin generally does a better job of making it seem plausible, of covering it up, of not having you notice. Like, I, I generally, I don't like pointing out plot holes. I don't <laughs> like being that guy. I think that's a, a lame mode of analysis and criticism. Yeah. But for me, the standard is always, did I notice it? Was it noticeable enough to be irritating to me? Right. That, that, that it doesn't seem realistic. And for me, some of the little finger plot points do come out in that regard. Speaking of which, uh, my dislike for the chapter is, it's very minor, but it gets at this, I think, somewhat sloppiness with how Littlefinger is written. Uh, is that Tyrion mentions that everyone at court has heard the story from Littlefinger about how Littlefinger took Catelyn's maidenhead. For me, that's a little over the top, just because if for no other reason than you think Ned would hear about this, if sure. everyone at court has heard this story, that how the, the frankly scandalous, quite significant story that Littlefinger took the maidenheads of, of the, the daughter of, of House Tully... Uh, you think Ned would hear about this and immediately resume holding a dagger to Lord Creepyfinger's throat at right. that point. It's because not only is that personally insulting, but that it gives away the game. It, it gives away that Littlefinger is not, the, you know, the the loyal, trusting servant of House Tully that he pretends to be, if this is how he's talking about Catelyn. Right. It gives away Littlefinger's real personality. It, it would, you know, kind of be over in an instant because ultimately Littlefinger needs Ned to trust him, as we'll see later in the book. So... Again, that's very minor, but I feel like it might have worked better if Tyrion had just said, well, I've heard the rumors at court right. that Littlefinger has taken your head, or it was mentioned to me in passing, or I overheard him saying it once. But the way he talks about it is like Littlefinger has just, like there's that line in Anchorman where uh, Will Ferrell sleeps with his co-worker and she says, please be discreet about this. And then <laughs> cut to him in the workplace next day going, Veronica Corningstone and I had sex and now we are in love. <laughs> Did I say that loud? Yeah, he kind of screamed it. Like that's <laughs> the way Tyrion talks. Like I get the impression that's how Littlefinger's been talking about oh, this. Yeah. And that's that's just not quite, it's not quite sly enough. It's not quite subtle enough. I wish Littlefinger was a little more secretive than he was, is what I'm saying. I think you're right. I think, George has said stuff like the the person the character who is the most unlike the character in this show is Littlefinger and he said ah oh, because in the books Littlefinger is everyone's friend and I have to scratch my head at that because I'm like that's the like this is the guy that's going around talking about all the chicks that he's banged like oh yeah I banged Catelyn and I banged Lysa and who uh, I banged everyone you know that's the guy that everyone likes in the story like no like that's He's not a likable guy. And, and this is going to be something we'll talk about in, um, in Edward 8. I think Edward 8 and Edward 9, how unlikable Littlefinger is. Like he's, he's not likable. And he's also, like we talked about in, in Edward 6, he's making jokes that people are not laughing at. And yet we're supposed to take it that he's just super likable, but it doesn't make sense necessarily as the character as he's developed in the books, as what George is saying here. But yeah, I think you're right that, story that Tyrion tells Catelyn that everyone that knows that that Littlefinger took your maidenhead it it just doesn't it doesn't read very Littlefinger-ish like the way that he comes across later in the books as he's developing he's much more sly and much more discreet maybe I don't know he he should be because yeah if you look at the context of Martin talking about Littlefinger being liked he's saying that you know he gets along with everyone because he's indispensable but no threat which well I get that but if he's spreading the story compulsively about how he slept with the daughter of House Tully, well, that's kind of advertising that he's not, in fact, everyone's friend. Right. He's not just playing along. He's not this trustworthy guy because he's never a challenge. He's clearly a threat at that point. Yeah. Like, look how look how high he set his ambitions. 
Look how much he's still talking about it. I feel like for Littlefinger to get away with what he's getting away with, he should be more like Varus. He should be obsequious in person. Yeah. Overly, overly demonstrative and giving way to the High Lords and, and their their requests and their little niceties. Um, it's hard for me to square... Because, like, someone who talks this brashly... Like, I think about, like, lazy Leo Terrell. Like, he talks this way. Right. He's very rude... And just crude and obnoxious, but he can get away with it because he's a Tyrell. Like, right. That's the point that Pate makes in the A Feast for Crows prologue. No one can touch him because of who his family is. Littlefinger, I don't know. I feel like he shouldn't be able to get away with talking like this. So I feel like, I do feel like Martin has kind of combined a couple different character traits that don't quite work together. He wants Littlefinger to be the underdog, but also the snarky asshole who's talking back to everyone. And those right. don't quite, those don't, both of those could work well on their own. They don't quite gel for me. Yeah. But having said all that, what is it you like about this chapter, sir? Well, you know, talking about like relationships that I feel like are more natural. I love the fact that Tyrion and Bronn's relationship kind of develops here in that it starts out with Tyrion not liking this guy because he's butchering his own horse. And it flows, though, that Bronn and Tyrion are mutually impressed by each other's strengths. So Tyrion... <laughs> it's almost like it's funny. It's almost like Tyrion is like penning like a little poem about Bronn because it says Bronn plunged through the clansmen like a whirlwind, cutting down foes left and right. It's like ah, oh. like he like Tyrion is is. It sounds like Tyrion has a bit of a man crush on, on Bronn and Bronn's uh, ability to wield a sword there. But then Bronn is likewise impressed by Tyrion's sardonic "I'm willing if she is" joke after the battle is done when he's he sees Catelyn over there and Bronn says, "Ah, you need a woman now now that you've shed blood for the first time." So I think that dynamic dynamic is is cool. It's set up well here in this chapter, and it's something that's going to be played through game clash and storm to, to even the point where Tyrion is willing to tell Bronn his deepest, darkest secret about Taisha later in, is that Tyrion 5 or Tyrion 6 where they're, they're coming down the, the mountains of the Vale. And that's where he tells him, tells him the story. This guy that he has, he hasn't known for more than a few weeks at this point. He's telling him his deepest, darkest secrets. But I think that's, that's a testament to this kind of the way that relationships develop. And I think it's a nice symbiotic relationship here, though, of course, that symbiotic relationship is going to have some dark, 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 uh, unfoldings as we're going to find out in storm where you know of course Tyrion Lannister will order Bronn to send uh Simeon Silvertongue into a uh, a bowl of brown in in King's Landing but you know it's it's nice at this point it's it's nice it's nice to have these two guys admiring <laughs> each other and admiring each other for their their strengths and then of course it becomes not so nice when Tyrion uses Bronn to do some dark dastardly deeds at King's Landing Dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I I also really like Tyrion and Bronn's relationship throughout the series. Um, well, I, I really enjoy the kind of drinking buddies dynamic they came up with on the show just because the actors sold it really well. I think that, that also loses something that makes the relationship interesting, which is that they admire each other as individuals, but the class dimension never really goes away. Yeah. It's always, always present in their conversations. Bronn is not Tyrion's friend, but what connections they... What connection they do make almost becomes more enjoyable because of that, because there's such a gap, because there doesn't even necessarily need to be a connection. And yeah, I mean, we're going to get into this in Tyrion 5, but I still remember that my first time through a Game of Thrones when Tyrion throws the dice and gambles it all and Bronn steps up and says, I'll stand for the dwarf. My first time through, it was like, yeah, (laughs) awesome. Oh, what a what an exciting, perfect moment. And it's because the set, the setup for it really is there in this chapter. So it does it does make sense. It fits the character. When we get to Catalan 6, 
both her and the Blackfish will mention how Braun is kind of trailing behind Tyrion like a shadow. Mm-hmm. So their relationship is already being set up there. And like you say, even though their relationship is extremely pragmatic and comes down to gold and mutual benefit, Tyrion does find himself telling Braun this story out of nowhere. And uh, we'll get into this when we get to Tyrion 6, but Braun's reaction to it is actually kind of heartfelt in a Braun kind of way. Uh, he does, he's not like dismissive. And in the show too, he just looks horrified at this story. So yeah. It's, 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 it's a nice, it's a, it's a compelling dynamic that Martin, I think, manages to make emotional without ever over-sentimentalizing it. So when, when Bronn names the kid Tyrion in A Feast mm-hmm. for Crows, the, the lawless kid at Stokeworth, uh, partially, of course, that's just a poke in the eye at Cersei, but you like to think there's something really, there's something genuine going on there. There's an actual respect that you see beginning in this chapter, like you say. Tyrion's impressed by Bronn as a soldier. Bronn immediately connects with Tyrion in terms of their humor. You can see a friendship building. Yeah, you do. You do see that. And, you know, of course, uh, Martin has confirmed that we will see Bronn in The Winds of Winter. And I, uh, I, I think I, I think it'd be cool if we got to meet Bronn holding his son Tyrion at some point, you know, in a Cersei chapter or a John Connington chapter or whatever chapter he's going to end up coming in in, 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 in The Winds of Winter. So... But uh, kind of like keeping with this the Bronn theme, I mean, we are going to be talking a bit more about Bronn at the end of this podcast. This uh, this chapter does help set up the idea that Bronn will stand up as Tyrion's champion in Catelyn Seven, and you know, I think it's it's good that we're this this introduction, their friendship proves to be of vital importance to Tyrion, as you say, when Bronn says, "I'll stand for the dwarf." You know, when Bronn laughs at Tyrion's joke and Tyrion thinks, ah, there's a start, you know, that's, that's a start. And that start is going to manifest itself out in, again, that, that Tyrion's trial by battle in Catelyn 7 and then on through Storm of Swords, where Bronn nearly stands for Tyrion. At some point, Tyrion tries to convince Bronn to stand for him against the mountain. But of course, Bronn says, ah, no, no thanks, man, at that point. But yeah, it's cool that we see the, the, the initial groundwork and foreshadowing for what's going to come between the Tyrion Bronn relationship. Yeah, I much as I love Feast for Crows, I would part of me always wanted to have like a Bronn POV in that book just to see what he was doing at Stokeworth because yeah. it sounded really it sounded really kind of fun and interesting from Cersei's POV just hearing about what he was getting up to. So I would I really would love that. And yeah, I'm looking forward as we'll get into a little bit later on the podcast on seeing what he gets up to in the books uh, vis-a-vis where he is in the show. Uh, of course, like I was saying before, like Tyrion's little love poem towards Bronn's fighting ability then manifests itself out with the fight itself. And then at the end of the fight, we have Tyrion observing Catelyn being pinned against the stone face of the mountain by three clansmen in which he then goes and tries to save and does successfully save Catelyn. And he kills one of the dudes or takes him out of the knee. He slashes another guy with his, with his axe. And then Catelyn steps up and does something that seems very likely to be foreshadowing of what Catelyn's going to be doing at the end of her story in A Storm of Swords. Yeah, gotta love that Catelyn is not a demure shrinking maiden during this fight, that as soon as she gets the chance, uh, when her third assailant is busy focused on Tyrion, quote, Catelyn stepped up behind him and opened his throat. And that is, of course, not the last time that Catelyn Stark will cut a throat. That is her last action, really, as Catelyn. Yes. We see, uh, at the Red Wedding, Catelyn will, of course, cut open Egan Jingle Bell Frey's throat when uh, she tries to spare his life in exchange for Rob's, and Lord Walder refuses the deal. Catelyn thinks to herself, well, Rob, Rob forswore his oath, but she kept hers. And she, she cuts, it's just brutal, she cuts Jingle Bell's throat till she fills the bone. Uh, so, yeah, I think you can definitely see Martin kind of building up towards that that distinct image of Catelyn and uh, 
the Red Wedding and Red Wedding and Lady Stoneheart foreshadowing will just keep coming when we get to Catelyn Six because, mm-hmm. like I said, there's she's already feeling her heart turn to stone in that chapter. Yeah, really is. It's uh, I think the the line is she saw it until she met Bone or something like that. And oh yeah, yeah. God. We're going to be a mess with that chapter, man. I know it's years off in the coming, but uh, no. uh, when we get to Catelyn 7, A Storm of Swords, that, that chapter is, it's so hard because it demands analysis because it's so perfectly constructed and every little moment is great, but it's also like, you don't want to look at it with your critical mind because just emotionally it's so hard to deal with. So I mean, every single time I read that chapter, five times now, and it'll be six times we get around to it in Storm of Swords, like it just... I always feel the pit in my stomach, like just open up, and I, I, I know it's coming every single time. I know it's coming, and it just kills me. No, that's probably the wrong word. It, it, uh, <laughs> it's, it's just painful, man. It's just pure pain. So we're gonna, we're gonna have to take lots of, lots of breaks, lots of crying breaks, lots of crying breaks. Uh, Bring some whiskey into that one. That exactly. Uh, on a lighter note, though, <laughs> just to keep doing that. No, we've been talking about, you know. Death and decay, disillusionment, the feudal order, the terrible fate you have when you go outside it. But uh, there's there's a something more kind of a lighthearted and pop culturey going on in this chapter as well. Yeah, so kind of a a bit of trivia for the for those of you guys who are listening and reading along with us. There's three characters in this chapter that have a um, you know they're they're homages to to something in in modern culture. So the characters are Curlicat, Laris, and Mohor. Do you guys notice anything about those names? Do they sound familiar <laughs> at all? Maybe if you guys are interested in comedy or even if you're not interested in comedy, if you're interested in kind of cultural history. Well, if you guess that they were homages to the Three Stooges, Curly, Larry and Moe, you are absolutely correct. Because George R. R. Martin confirmed that as much back in 2006, where a fan wrote him saying, Dear George, I'm new to your work and just started reading A Game of Thrones. I just ran across the names Curly Cat, Laris and Mohor. I'm sure I'm not the first to make the connection to the Three Stooges, but I wanted you to know that I nearly fell on the floor with laughter. Thanks for the laughs. Are there more hidden characters? I'm looking forward to the cameo appearances of Shempus and Curly Johor. So George responded, the Three Stooges? In my book? Come on, you've got to be kidding. Would I do something like that? That's a very tense chapter charged with menace. What are you laughing for? If I were to insist that the names were purely a coincidence, you'd buy it. Wouldn't you? Okay, okay, what can I say? Guilty as charged. I don't know what came over me. I'm not even that big of a Stooges fan. That's my friend Howard Waldrop. I much prefer Abbott and Costello. Hmm, I wonder if I can work in Bud and Lou somewhere. So, again, George said that in 2006, and I just think it's kind of a funny little thing that George decided to have these three Stooges in the books. There are different homages to different cultural icons and things that George is kind of known growing up and he also has a bunch of his friends that he has in the books as well he even has a whole house dedicated to his friend robert jordan that is house jordan that is down in dorn but he has a number of these homages here and we'll, we'll try and pick them up and point them out to you guys as we're progressing through these books absolutely He's, he throws football references in there comic book references and you know of course that's something a lot of authors do is as little easter eggs or is, is just when they're trying to come up with a name but yeah, I specifically love that quote when he's pointing out that, hey, this is a really tense, menacing scene. I would never throw a joke in there. And I think that's I think that's a great little lesson where about tone, where, yes, you want to establish the tone of your scene and you want it to be consistent and you want it to be memorable and keep people hooked. But 
you shouldn't get so married to like a, a tense menacing tone that there's no humor allowed or no f- no fun can possibly happen cuz you know you go that way and you end up with grim dark yeah so juggling multiple tones in a scene is very very difficult to do i think in any medium and it's easy to do it very wrong but martin i think is generally pretty good at it and i like that he i like that he pointed that out in his answer that that's really what he's trying to do in this scene is in- interject a little a wink in an otherwise very kind of fraught moment i think it's just a little bit funny and yeah i do agree that when you're writing fiction and writing some of these tense scenes if you guys are writers out there try and integrate something there to break up the tension and you could do something as simple as having a reference to the three freaking stooges in your uh in your scene so yeah so i think that is all of our foreshadowing and groundwork for this chapter you know, for this chapter, for our theory discussion, we were kind of going back and forth about what to, to talk about. And we didn't really come up with anything necessarily about this chapter that could be coming to a big, big discussion necessarily. So we thought to kind of have a little fun. And that one of the characters that's introduced in this chapter, of course, is Bronn, as we've been talking about a fair amount here in the past few minutes. And Bronn, as a character... As, as Emmett pointed out, is a different character from the books in the show. But, you know, he still exists in the show and he exists as, as not a 100% adaptation from book to page, from page to, from page to screen. But he is, you know, still kind of, he's similar. He retains a lot of the similarities as the book character does. So I figure we would talk maybe a little bit about Bronn in season seven. As you guys know, Bronn has kind of taken on an interesting role in the story that's not in, in the show that is not necessarily congruent with the Bron with Bron's role in the books. Of course, Bron in the books goes back with Tyrion to King's Landing, fights the Battle of the Blackwater. He then uh, is assisting Tyrion with his different intrigues in King's Landing and a Storm of Swords. When Tyrion departs King's Landing, he remains in Westeros. He, be- he has the kid named Tyrion, and of course, you know Cersei tries to have him killed. And that is kind of the last we hear about him. Again, that attempted murder doesn't go so well for Cersei and sends her into a paranoid, I don't know what you would call it, a paranoid episode. Pretty classic Cersei reaction, yeah. Right. Her, her, her paranoia and depression and anxiety all collapse in on her. But yeah, she she tries to have uh, Bronn killed, uh, but he ends up uh, Lord of Stokeworth uh, as, a res- as a result of her meddling. As usual, Cersei picks uh, very... Very poor pawns. Uh, she she tries to have was it uh, Felice Stokeworth and her husband yep. try to try to get them to bump off Braun and of course they just they make a, a mess of it and uh, Braun ends up on top of it. Which is you know that's just Braun's whole story at this point is just kind of take, taking advantage of the holes the Lannisters leave open for him and uh, using that to climb up the ladder. But yeah, in the show, he's 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 been kind of become just a Jamie's right hand man. Yeah, he's Jamie's right hand man. Of course, he goes with Jamie to Dorne in season five, which has received a fair amount of critical attention, which we won't focus on right now, necessarily. But let's fast forward a little bit to Bronn in season seven. So season seven was a season of TV that I thought was really interesting in that it had some of the show's best moments. And some of the show's worst moments as well, in my opinion. Some of the best moments of the show come, in my opinion, in the loot train battle. What's been what's known now as the loot train battle, where the Lannister army traveling back from the Reach is ambushed and intercepted by Daenerys Targaryen and the Dothraki, and there's a huge, massive battle that's fought. 
and many Lannister men die, and some Dothraki die as well, but the people that die aren't necessarily major characters. You have Randall Tarley and Dickon Tarley who die, of course, in the next episode. One character that has been focused on that maybe should have died in some of the more critical cr- critical analyses of that episode is Bronn. And I don't know. I wanted to turn it over to you. Do you think that Bronn should have died in season seven, episode four? I think if you want a major battle, especially on television, to have a sense of weight and stakes with the audience, you do need to kill someone. I mean, I think that's that's kind of a cold and mercenary way of looking at it. But in terms of the overall arc of an episode, in terms of what you want to have people talking about, if you want to give them a sense of real weight, yeah, you need to kill someone off that the audience knows, not just random extras. And, right. Uh, not even. Not even the. I mean, I think Randall and Dick on after the battle. Got the job done in terms of Danny and Tyrion's arcs, in terms of emphasizing how far Danny had gone and uh, how kind of horrified Tyrion was with it. But in terms of the battle itself and that episode, yeah, I was I was expecting I was expecting Bronn to die. He kind of outlived his structural usefulness on the show. Was mostly just there as a scene partner for Jamie. Yeah. So on the other hand, though, I really like Jerome Flynn in the role, and I really <laughs> kind of enjoy him in scenes. So this is, I think, a uh, a real big difference between the show and the books just in terms of the medium. I mean, this is something that's come up with, with uh, Beric Dondarrion, who's long gone in the books. But since they weren't doing Stoneheart, they kept him around in the show. And Richard Dormer does a really good job with him. So sure. why not? Or Lena Headey, I think most people, I think, agree that Cersei is probably not around this long in the books. That she's not making it. I will be shocked if she makes it to a dream of spring. Uh, and <laughs> Really shocked if she makes it well into A Dream of Spring, uh, as is kind of the equivalent of making it to season eight on the show. Yeah. And I think they've kept her around in part because they weren't doing, they weren't doing the young Griff plotline, so she was able to take over a lot of that. And again, because they just, they love the actress, and Lena Headey does a great job with it, yeah, so great. yeah, keep keep her around. You know, you, you keep your favorites around long enough, and then it's it starts to, you start to lose the tension that brought people to this story in both book and show in the first place, which is that sense of nothing is safe and you're, you can't be sure if your favorites will make it. Uh, I think they could have emphasized that with Braun going down in the field of fire, especially if he went down in a kind of heroic fashion saving Jamie. Maybe that's what inspires Jamie to question his relationship to Cersei. I think there's a way you could have dramatically integrated it in a way that would have made sense because, I mean, we'll see in season eight. I don't think Braun has much to do that contributes to the larger movements of the plot anymore. It could be proven wrong by season eight, but... He seems like kind of an ascended extra at this point. Yeah. So overall, it might seem harsh to say, but yeah, I think I think Braun should have gone down that battle. What do you think, sir? So I, I rewatched the scene before we came on air, and there's a moment in the battle itself where Braun is riding through the camp and he gets knocked off his horse, and actually not just knocked off his horse. One of the Dothraki dudes takes an arrow and like chops the legs off of his horse and his leg and the horse goes flying. The horse is dead. Bronn goes flying off the horse. He has the moment where he's looking, he sees the bag of gold splatting on the ground with the kind of the gold pieces trailing off. And he has the mission, of course, that Jamie has given him to shoot the scorpion. And Bronn chooses then to go run after the scorpion, just to shoot the scorpion and to, to abandon the gold. So it, it felt like this moment that would have been a great, moment for Bronn to have finally died because he had learned that there's more to life than simply serving the side that pays him the best, that provides him the most benefits that he, you know, had made a full arc at that point of going from, you know, from the Vale of Aaron where he's 
serving alongside of Tyrion and defending him, defending Tyrion against Vardis Egan to the point where he's gone beyond himself and his own interests and he's willing to die for a cause and maybe not for a cause. Maybe he's willing to die for a friend and that friend being Jamie Lannister. But yeah, it, it seemed like a fitting end for Bronn to die there. And I think it would have raised the stakes to have a character like Bronn die. I think in Blackwater, I thought it was really heartbreaking when Mathos dies at the Battle of the Blackwater. Mathos is not a major character in the same sense that Bronn is not a major character, but he is he's a character that you maybe care about, and maybe you care about him in the context of Davos being his father. You care about Bronn being a sidekick for Jaime and for Tyrion, and having Bronn die at the Field of Fire might have made that event much more poignant, much more emotionally connected to the audience. And it would have, I think you you make a great point, Emmett, in that you said that if Bronn had died, it would have been the point where Jamie would have been, where Jamie would have had reason to be like super pissed off and upset about his friend dying. And then that gives some additional leverage and reason to break away from Cersei as opposed to essentially breaking away from Cersei because Cersei plotting, is plotting to betray the people that she had made a treaty with. And then, of course, Cersei threatening to kill Jamie with uh, Sir Gregor Clegane. But I don't know. I mean, I, I love Jerome Flynn too. You know, I. I <laughs> I just don't see the plot purpose for him existing beyond that. You know, in season seven, what was the other, the only other major thing he does is that he brings Jamie and Tyrion together under the Red Keep. And even that wasn't necessarily, in my opinion, wasn't played as well as it could have been. So it feels like it could have been done by, by any really, by anyone at that point, as opposed to just Bronn just being the guy that brings these two guys together. Exactly. And I think that's part of the ripple effects from cutting out the Taisha reveal, which really affects how you do Tyrion and Jamie going forward. But yeah, beautifully said, sir, about Bronn's arc and about what that decision kind of could have meant in context that feels like a Martin kind of thing to do where you make the good decision and that doesn't necessarily save your life, but it does, it does let you go out with this, this strong identity and, you know, Bronn kind of knowing who he is and what he cares about would be quite moving. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with him in the books. I think the fact that he is uh, now a, a notable lord in the King's Landing area could prove quite significant when it comes to Danny and Tyrion getting into King's Landing and dealing with uh, Team Cersei or Team Griff. Maybe Bronn will play a useful role in that regard. But, yeah, I mean, much as I would have liked to see Bronn in A Feast for Crows, like I said, I think, you know, Martin kind of made this call where it's like, I, I still like the character. I want him to have him mentioned. I want to have this little moment where he names the kid Tyrion. But he's he's no longer plot relevant, so I'm not going to spend that much time on him. True. Whereas in the show, of course, you can the show you can indulge in him purely for the sake of enjoying the actor, which just isn't a factor when it comes to the books. But I am I'm definitely looking forward to some kind of resolution to the Braun Tyrion relationship in the books more than we've gotten. I, I I hope we get to see that same kind of dynamic again, where the the class relationship is present and they're both aware of it, but they're trying to reach out to each other beyond that. And maybe they'll have some line about how they're not so different after all. Now, Tyrion's <laughs> kind of been brought low and Bronn's been brought high. So I look forward to that for sure. I mean, it's also cool, too, that Tyrion essentially becomes a sellsword at the end of his dance arc as a second son. He enters yes, the company of a sellsword and, and Bronn has advanced from a sellsword to being a lord. So we've gone from Lord Tyrion, Master of Coin, to being a sellsword. And Bronn has gone from Bronn the sellsword to being Lord of Stokeworth in the books and you know, like we said in our uh, our Patreon episode about the Winds of Winter, you do kind of wonder whether George might look at the performance of Jerome Flynn, much as he looked at the performance of Natalia Tena as Osha. 
and be like, hey, maybe I can do more with this character because I have some, some inspiration in my back as a result of watching the performance of Jerome Flynn as Bronn. And maybe there's more in store for Bronn in the Winds of Winter as a result of Jerome Flynn's performance. And if that's the case, I think I would definitely look forward to that and enjoy that immensely in the books. Agreed. And I love what you said about the irony of Tyrion becoming a Selsor while Bronn becomes a lord. And I think you can definitely see Tyrion recreating his dynamic with Bronn when it comes to Brown Ben Plum at the end of A Dance with Dragons at the beginning of Winds of Winter. I think it's a very similar relationship. So I'll be curious to see how that plays into it. But yeah, Bronn is a character with a a lot lot of potential in the books. And I'm interested to see where he goes. And while I, I do think it would have made the show overall better if he died at the, the loot cart, the, uh, the loot train battle, uh, I, I can't say I'm disappointed to see Jerome Flynn continue to raise his eyebrows and snark in everyone's direction in season eight. So that'll be fun. Yeah. And I think that is a fantastic place to end with Jerome Flynn snarking and raising his eyebrows at the world around him, much as we do as we're reading these chapters. So thank you all very much for listening to us. We appreciate your guys' ears and your continued support for us. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, SoundCloud, wherever you can find your podcast, we're there. Rate, review us. We love listening and hearing from you guys. Yes, indeed. Uh, you can find us personally, uh, me at PoorQuentin or at uh, PoorQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brennan B. Fish on Twitter, Brennan B. Fish on, on Reddit. And my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. And as always, please check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. If you're one of our $5 and above patrons, please submit a question to us and we would love to answer it in our Patreon-only episode, again, coming away on September 27th. Join us next time as Arya Stark attempts to catch cats and ends up finding spiders instead in Arya 3. One of, again, one of my top five chapters in the Game of Thrones. This chapter is freaking great. Can't wait to discuss it with you, sir. And thanks for listening as always, people. Check you next time. See ya.